A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Good morning. You are watching The Independent Republican Mike Graham with me, Kevin O'Sullivan, on tour, on TV, on radio, online, and on your smart speaker. Coming up, Rishi Sunak touched down in Israel as world leaders call for a de-escalation of tensions in the Middle East. As the humanitarian crisis in Gaza grows, Egypt agrees to open its border to allow aid in. And the barge is back in business with migrants expected to return to the Bibi Stockholm today. Now, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak landed in Israel earlier this morning. He's set to meet Israeli PM Benjamin Netanyahu. All eyes will be on what he and the Israel Defense Forces do in the coming days with reports that American President Joe Biden, who visited Israel yesterday, has given his private backing to an Israeli ground invasion of the Gaza Strip. Talk TV's international editor, Isabel Oakshot, joins me now. Uh, what do you think that will herald? I mean, given that Joe Biden has said you can now invade, you know, Israel now for the best part of two weeks is saying, you know, all hell's going to break loose, the next yeah. stage is coming, uh, this will be a long and difficult war. These quotes are going around in circles. Yeah. So do you think that the president's go-ahead will now finally result in this well, land invasion? It, it appears from those on the ground that there there is no question mark over whether this invasion is going to happen. I think many people have been surprised by the delay, as it were. You know, there was speculation many days ago that it was literally about to happen and it has been held off, um, particularly complicated by the events yesterday involving the hospital and who was responsible, not helped by uh, Joe Biden declaring that it appears to be the, the work of the other team, um, which has gone down spectacularly badly in the region and has derailed many of the other exactly. diplomatic efforts that were happening out there. So look, I think this will happen. There is a huge question mark over what is going to happen to the fate of the many innocent people uh, within Gaza who cannot get out. We've heard this morning um, that there is now an opening for aid to get in, but that doesn't mean people can get out. Exactly right. Uh, Biden also urged Israel not to re repeat America's mistakes after 9-11, where he says the country was consumed by fury, rage and revenge. Uh, I think what he meant by that was uh, don't make the mistakes of those awful Republicans like George Bush. Uh, he's a dyed-in-the-wool Democrat, just playing politics uh, with that, I think. I thought it was a very strange and interesting mm, comment. Yeah. Didn't appear to be tremendously well thought through. He didn't spell out. <laughs> I mean, surprise there. He didn't <laughs> spell out what he meant. I mean, your initial, initial sense might be that is he really saying 
that actually America should never have done what it did in Afghanistan, or really what he's saying is you need a plan for what happens afterwards. Well, I'm pretty sure they could have worked that out. Uh, indeed. Now, uh, we discussed this last night, you and I, on the talk. Uh, let's talk about Joe Biden. Uh, in essence, you know, the fate of the world is in this man's hands. He turns up, this doddering old geezer, yeah. attends this uh, press conference where he's got cue cards going, oh, I'm going to tell you a story that's a bit long, I'll tell you later. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, of course he's probably surrounded by talented uh, diplomatic people. The, uh, the uh, oh, it looks like it was uh, from the other team. Really ill-advised. Not that I don't agree with him, but diplomatically, uh, that was a disaster, that statement, because immediately uh, Lebanon erupted in furious riots, particularly Look. outside the US embassy. Uh, Iran said, right, we're going to attack. Uh, Egypt was furious. I mean, it was a ridiculous thing to say. I mean, this is a, a personal tragedy to watch this man who is clearly not well. He is very, very elderly. Whatever he's suffering from appears to be getting worse. Yes. And it is awful to watch. But it's not just a human tragedy. It's actually downright dangerous having somebody who is not in, apparently in full possession of all their faculties at this utterly critical geopolitical moment to have somebody who wanders off script who is completely unpredictable in terms of what he suddenly may say that may have massive, massive political uh, consequences in what is already a tinderbox. I am astonished um, that, that the system in America continues yeah. to prop this up because I tell you, it would not happen in this country. When we've previously had leaders of political parties, and I'm not talking prime ministers here, I'm talking leaders of political parties who have demonstrably not been well. I'm thinking of Charlie Kennedy when he was leader of the Lib Dems. That was not tolerated. It was tolerated for a bit. And when he didn't get better, he was ousted. Again, Ming Campbell as leader of the Lib Dems was considered too old. Uh, and he was never not in possession of his faculties. He was completely there. Both he was fit and he was sharp and all of those things. And nonetheless, there was endless comment in this country about how he was too old and infirm for the job, which was pretty scurrilous at the time, but does apply to well, Biden. I mean, America's uh, in danger mm. of becoming like sort of uh, China, a gerontocracy, just a, the, you know, a country ruled by extremely old men. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've got this presidential election coming up, which will be between two men uh, around about the age of 80. And uh, it, it's worrying. That, uh, but, I mean, uh, one thing that... Uh, I used to live in the States. One thing people don't realise about America, uh, and I, I don't decry America for this, but they, they uh, old people are far more prominent there. Yeah. Uh, every news anchor, every local yeah. news anchor is at least 75 years old. They respect the, the aged. Which is a good which is, thing. Which is a good <laughs> thing. But this guy, uh, you know, his cognitive abilities are, they've just disappeared. So I don't see him needing... Into the I don't see him ultimately leading into the next election. I think that there will be some kind of deal and maybe it will be a Michelle Obama or someone else comes in. I mean, it, can you imagine if this was President Trump who was behaving like this, who was not in possession of his faculties in this way? Can you imagine the outcry from the establishment in America? There is no way that they would tolerate this. Yeah. This guy is just a, 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 a wounded puppet, isn't he? 
He is, and uh, Trump, but meanwhile, uh, as always, has turned this uh, horrible uh, conflict in the Middle East to something that's all about, about him. him. <laughs> uh, and his big thing is he hates Netanyahu because Netanyahu was one of the first world leaders to congratulate Biden on his uh, electoral victory. Right. And, of course, uh, uh, Trump insists that was not a victory. Uh, so uh, he, he's... Uh, uh, making capital out of all of this. As he always does. Um, and the more they come after him, the more it reinforces his base and he looks stronger by the day. He certainly does. Uh, let's come uh, back to Britain now. Uh, what did you make of uh, King Charles's speech last night in the city at Mansion House? Uh, I thought it was rather good. Uh, you know, uh, one, one mustn't criticise the Queen, but her speeches were notoriously bland. Boring, yeah. Bland and boring, yeah. the, the kind of speech, the oratorial uh, equivalent of the colour beige. Mm. Uh, but uh, King Charles made a good speech last night, talking about civility, tolerance, even in the most fractious of times, talking about how, you know... Why can't we learn to uh, have uh, civilised arguments rather than calling each other names on uh, uh, Twitter? And so I, th I thought it was quite interesting. I mean, great, uh, great sentiments, but what does it actually translate into? You know, as he's making that speech, there were hundreds of Palestinian supporters gathering on Whitehall, mm -hmm. all crouching down on the ground to pray in front of the gates of Downing Street. I mean, those images I find pretty unsettling. Um, not because we don't honour people's right to different, different religious beliefs and so on, and all of that is absolutely fine. But where are the allegiances of people in this country? There have been many, many disturbing scenes in the last week or so, uh, which have led me to be really worried about what we have got going on here. Um, I'm going to go off piece here a bit because I'm really keen to get your view on uh, the BBC in all of this. Uh, uh, John Simpson, uh, the 146-year-old uh, foreign editor there, oh, I think he calls himself foreign executive editor now or something, he's in trouble for uh, trying to explain why the BBC doesn't call Hamas uh, um, terrorists. Uh, and he cited, oh, even in the Second World War, we didn't call the Nazis uh, evil or yeah, something like that. Uh, and uh, Grant Shapps has come out and said, well, when you start quoting the Nazis, that means you've, you've lo always lost. lost the argument. Yeah. But far more worrying, uh, their reporter uh, over there in uh, Gaza, when th that bomb or missile hit the hospital there uh, two nights ago now, uh, he, he came on air and he said, it's difficult to see how anyone else but Israel could be to blame for this atrocity. Now, I know for a fact that the BBC, they are tearing their hair out about this. That was an outrageous thing to say. And by the way, it is now looking as if these reports of hundreds dead, yeah, 500 dead, not, are dubious to say yeah, the least. It looks accurate. like a fairly small missile hit yeah. the car park, set fire to a few cars. So we don't know the truth of this, but this BBC reporter immediately announced to millions of BBC viewers this was Israel. Outrageous. I mean, there's an absolute toxic whirlpool of misinformation, isn't there, at the moment. And the BBC should not be playing its part in fueling that. I think that the corporation has had a disastrous really? war so far. <laughs> um, I mean, we heard this morning Tom Tugendhat, the security minister, 
condemning the lies that are being propagated. I mean, this is strong language. Mm. Um, the corporation was already in trouble on so many fronts, and this just highlights everything that I think people are concerned about. It will reopen questions about the licence fee. Unfortunately, the Tories who have had so many years to do something about it, they have missed their chance, and I'm afraid this just goes on. Yeah, well, I, I know for a fact, personally, uh, there's a lot of good journalists at the BBC. 100%, and, and there is utter turmoil at Broadcasting House about the way the BBC looks like it's backing Hamas. Just they ridiculous. are really, really yeah. upset about it. Uh, so don't let anyone persuade you, like John Simpson, that it's all calm there and we're sure of what we're doing. They're not. They're making a mistake. Uh, what about uh, sir, the most important opinions, of course, on this horrible conflict in the Middle East are, are those of celebrities, aren't they? Oh, uh, it's yeah. good to... Hear what they think. Uh, I think we've got uh, Mo Salah uh, offering his views. Uh, let's take it away, Mo. It's not always easy to speak in time like this. There has been too much violence and too much heartbreaking brutality. The escalations in the recent weeks is unbearable to witness. All lives are sacred and must be protected. The massacres need to stop. Families are being torn apart. I'm calling in the world leaders to come together to prevent the further slaughter of innocent souls. Humanity must prevail. It's like I, something you get from a Miss World contestant, yeah. isn't it? I mean, who advises these people to do these interventions? I don't know. He's a good goal scorer, but... Uh, Brilliant, but yeah, maybe <laughs> And he's Egyptian, of course. Uh, uh, but then you've got Alicia Keys, who basically came out, said she was going to take up a new hobby. She fancied paragliding. Uh, she had to delete that... Um, uh, tweet. Where's Emma Thompson? Uh, well, this is what's interesting, isn't it? Now, uh, the, the, all celebrities in these moments, uh, they should shut the hell up. It's not something they should get involved in uh, because no good ever comes of no. their statements. Uh, and what you could have relied upon were Israel guilty of some horrendous war crime or something. Uh, you'd have had uh, Emma Thompson, Gary Lineker, all the usual suspects mm. coming out of the woodwork to condemn the evil bullies of the Middle Middle East, uh, but of course, Israel is the victim of this. So, what have we got from Emma and the Gam? Mm. A wall Quiet. of silence. Yeah, yeah, but we'll soon get offers to house refugees, won't we? That'll be the next thing. You are watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham with me, uh, Kevin O'Sullivan, on Talk TV. Now, the controversial Bibby Stockholm barge in Dorset will house migrants once again from this morning, as it is reported that 29 asylum seekers will reboard the barge. Around 40 migrants were forced to evacuate the floating accommodation back in August after deadly Legionella bacteria was discovered in its water supply. The government stated that around 500 migrants could be housed there. I want to know what you think about this. Uh, is it time to stick them on board finally? Uh, give me a call on 0344 499 or you can text us at talk, uh, right, talk in your message and uh, quote for 87222. Uh, to discuss this in more detail, we'll be joined in a little while by uh, immigration lawyer Ivan Sampson. But first, I want to get your view on it, uh, Isabel. I mean, the thing about the Bibby Stockholm was, had they have uh, got these 500 unemployed young men on board back uh, whenever it was in the early summer... I mean, I suppose it would have sent some sort of message. It was tokenistic, to say the least. 500 
migrants, 170,000, meanwhile, all over the country in hotels waiting for their asylum uh, uh, applications to be processed. Uh, but it has turned into a, a, a complete I joke. I mean, an a absolute joke. great British farce, which would actually be funny if it wasn't so completely infuriating in terms of the grotesque waste of taxpayers' money. I mean, look, this discovery of Legionella, it is a fairly routine thing in any public buildings, in hospitals, in boarding houses, in any institution. There are routinely checks for Legionella. And when it's detected... Basically, they stop the showers or the baths for a couple of days, things get flushed through the system, and then everybody goes back to normal again. How has it taken several months for this to happen? And how is it that they're only now accommodating 40 refugees when there are actually 500 spaces on the Bibby Stockholm, which I've looked into in detail, by the way. It is perfectly decent, respectable, safe accommodation. And the nonsense that is being perpetuated about this. I mean, there was even one guy who was supposed to be accommodated on it who apparently has a terror of water. Yeah, that's right. I mean, sorry, but this is Britain. There's a lot of water around. You've come to the wrong place. Maybe flee somewhere else if you're scared of water. Mm. So I think it is a, a complete disgrace, this. They should fill every space available. And then let's get more Bibby Stockholms. Absolutely, and they want to do that. Uh, But again, they'll only ever be tokenistic, but at least they could have filled this. And of course, this is a barge uh, that uh, was first commissioned, I think, in Barbados more than 50 years ago. It has, uh, in half a century, travelled all over the world where it has housed construction workers. It has also housed... um, Uh, migrants uh, in some places. So it's uh, multi-purpose. It has done its job extremely well. And and the location is fantastic, by the way. Very nice. You can walk to some of the nicest beaches in Britain from there. I'm not being funny. I know, I know the area That is a lovely location. And there were many people who would pay good money for a holiday in that area. Absolutely. And I I have paid good money for a holiday in that area. Anyway, so it gets to Britain... And uh, the fire brigade, the fire brigade union, not the fire brigade, the fire brigade union say this is a floating Grenfell tower. It is an inferno waiting to happen. No, it's not. That's a lie. And it's floating, so there's no shortage of water <laughs> yeah. to put out any minor um, problems that there might be. I mean, look, this is a nonsense. It should be seen for what it is, which is incredibly politically motivated meddling. Uh, and there are elements who just do not want to see this ever succeed. And I can't understand why, because the housing of um, asylum seekers, as they wait literally years in some cases for their claims, which should be possible to determine in a matter of days, really, um, the housing of them in communities is proving incredibly divisive and is causing huge problems in areas where they are. Completely imposed on these people without any consultation. To discuss this more in detail, I'm joined by Ivan Sampson, an immigration lawyer. Hello, Ivan. Oh, Uh, oh, Ivan's gone all quiet. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, uh... Hold on a second. Can we hear you now, Uh, Ivan? um, Yeah, it should be working... Gotcha. Uh, So you must be pleased uh, that they're finally going to uh, get the migrants on board the Bibby Stockholm after all this toing and froing for several months? Well, yes, but, you know, asylum seekers don't want to live in pleasant locations, have nice views or be housed in... Well, what, uh, they prefer nasty accommodation and rubbish views, do they? What they want is for their asylum application to be decided in a reasonable time scale. 
That's what they want. And the issues are, the reason we're having to do this is because the Home Office is so incompetent of not, not deciding up applications in, in, in a reasonable time. Um, 95% of those come from Syria are being granted asylum um, from Iraq, Afghanistan. Why is it taking years to decide these claims? So that's the solution. In terms of the Stockholm itself, I mean, it's a, it's a token gesture because you'd need probably about a thousand of these all around our coastline to to uh, accommodate the numbers. Well, why don't so, we do it? And, Good and idea. Good idea. Great. Let's do it. We've got quite a lot of coast. Well, the savings not great either because a recent study by a think tank said that its savings is about eleven pounds per person. Uh, the oh. cost of this is horrendous to the taxpayer. The cost of setting this up, to refitting it, having all the personnel on board, uh, you know, and, and these should be temporary accommodations. And what they're turning going to turn into is long-term accommodation while the Home Office twiddle their thumbs deciding their uh, asylum claims. Well, it's better, so though, I, Ivan, isn't, isn't it better than uh, the taxpayer having to foot the bill uh, for more than 500 expensive hotels all over the country? Well, if you drill down into the numbers, the savings are not great. If you, if you add in the cost of setting this up, if you add all those numbers in, then the costs are not fantastic. I read a recent report, and I can't, I'm embarrassed, I can't name it, but they worked it out as £11 per person saving per day. Well, that's, uh, that's not having. a massive saving. Well, that's so, a good save. That's I mean, a good saving. Why not? Why not go for it? Well, I'd, I'd like to, to vote the more for expensive a government system. that has a proper... I'd like to vote for a government that has a proper asylum system, decides asylum applications in a timely manner, and I think that should be put on a statutory footing. If we did that, if we put that on a statutory footing, giving the government deadlines to decide these cases, they might pull their finger out their ears. Uh, Ivan, I'm, I'm with my colleague uh, Isabella Oakshot. I think she wants to ask you a question. Yeah, Ivan, isn't there another point here which I think is really important, which is actually the kind of isolation of the Bibby Stockholm in that location? Because the problem you've got, and I've seen it for myself in Derby, the problem you've got, if you've got a um, migrant hotels which are in the middle of communities, what is actually happening is that migrant were illegal asylum seekers are going out into the community during the day and taking jobs on the black market. And it is very difficult to monitor and track who is doing what, where, when, when they are put in the middle of a city like that. Well, you've already decided that they're all illegal, which is simply not true. Well, they are uh, by definition. If you look they, at the data... Well, by, if by you let me answer the they question... Are. Many of those people have come over by boat, which is illegal. If they came uh, over isn't. on a boat or a dinghy, that's against the law. It isn't, it I'm is. afraid. It there's, is. There's a it don't give us any of that claptrap about once they apply, oh. then they're legal. It That's rubbish. It's not true. They came over on an well, illegal vessel. We could arrest them on the beach. Well, let me educate you, Kevin, on the law. Um, the, the refugee well, after convention... I just educated you. OK, go ahead. The Refugee Convention says that there's no such thing as a legal entry for a genuine asylum. That's for not people the law, who is it? That's asylum. not the law. It, well, it is. It isn't. It isn't. It isn't British law. British law says act. you cannot come across the channel in an illegal vessel without documents, which is what they all do. That is against British law. Don't quote me refugee conventions. That isn't the law. 
that's in conflict of international treaty. Oh, I see. I see. We're moving on, are we? We're moving on, are we? So Don't talk to me about international no. law. Let's talk about British law. And, and by the way, even well, international law says that you've got to claim asylum in the first safe country to which you arrive. I mean, that's that is there as clear I'm as afraid. day. I've read it. It, it doesn't, Isabel. I don't know what you're reading, but I'm the re Refugee Convention doesn't say that. I didn't um, say the Refugee Convention. I've said other law. Don't. Yeah, but the Refugee the Convention is not British to. law, Ivan. Why do you keep quoting it? It's well, irrelevant. Well, it isn't. We're signed it's up not to British that law. How many more times I've got to tell you this? <laughs> oh, my well, goodness. You're the lawyer. Why don't you know here. the law? Uh, well, I'm telling you that the, uh, those <laughs> claiming asylum Struggling a bit now, don't we? have to claim under the convention. Stop talking the about the convention. What about British law? These people have well, broken British law. They've come across the channel in illegal vessels, mostly without documents. That is against the law. We could arrest them. We could detain them. We could prosecute them if we wanted. And we can decide their asylum application in a reasonable manner. And if they... If they it's not the law, though, is it? the Refugee Convention, then we should grant them refugee status. There we go, yeah. And Why don't you say Refugee so Convention those, a few more times? Those that are coming here illegally, as you say, those who are not genuine, we should remove them. The government's not doing that. Yeah, well, uh, I, I accept that, that. You've got a point there. You've got a point there. I agree yeah. with you there. <laughs> The, um, the traffickers, we should be prosecuting them. The government's not doing that. Oh, but it's so, all so easy, know, isn't it? It's so easy just to go on about the people traffickers. That is the low-hanging fruit. That is the politically the most, the, the simplest, most non-controversial target. And I frankly find it, not on your part, Ivan, but I frankly find it cowardly on the part of politicians who can only ever talk about the evil people smugglers because that removes their responsibility for the actual market for the services that are provided by those evil people smugglers, which we are responsible for fueling because of the pull factors. Yeah, and these migrants, Ivan, uh, you know, they, they cough up a lot of money to come across the channel. Uh, and uh, the way it's depicted, as Isabel said, by... Uh, uh, craven politicians is that all the migrants are just innocent. They're, they've been manipulated by these evil people smugglers. The people smugglers are evil. We should catch as many as we can and uh, sentence them, uh, as we did uh, only yesterday, to long sentences behind bars. But the migrants are also breaking our laws and they are not just uh, powerless puppets in all of this. Uh, they are masters of their own destiny. They're the ones who came here. You know what's going on. Well, I agree with you to some extent because those who are not genuine using false uh, uh, facts to claim asylum, yep. we should weed, weed them out. And, and the, I'm afraid Agreed. the Home Office is not up to the task. So many, many asylum seekers use similar stories, yeah. identical stories, to get within the Refugee Convention. Yeah. And, which is, which is probably, really... Ivan, why, why uh, when France and Germany, countries like that, uh, accept around about 4 or 5% of their asylum applications, uh, uh, we accept something like 75%. That is ludicrous. We've got to change their, our criteria, haven't we? We need a robust system to weed out those people that are not genuine. I 100% agree with you on that. We don't have that. There's not proper training of Home Office staff. I was in court only last week. The whole day, not a single 
Home Office advocate was there to fight for the Home Office. So to that's fight a for state the of affairs, I'm afraid. Yeah, to fight uh, for the taxpayer. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, they should be there. Where is that? I, I agree with that. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, everybody should be uh, fighting their corner. Uh, so what is to be done then, Ivan? Uh, we, you know, was it back in the 90s or late 80s that the then Labour Home Secretary said, John Reid said, uh, the Home Office is not fit for purpose? I mean, what are we now, 30, 35 years on? It's still not fit for purpose, is it? You're going to hate me, Kevin, what I'm going to say. I already do, Ivan. Don't worry so about that. We, we, <laughs> we need on. to do a deal with France and oh, over above that the EU. Oh, yeah, forget we that. We need that. The only oh. people that are going to stop these boats are the French. So oh, come on, Ivan. We've, we've tried that. No. We've tried that. Well, Don't you understand? You, look, look, politics. Let's talk about politics. Uh, if Macron starts stopping the migrants leaving their northern beaches... Uh, that's a vote loser for him. And when uh, we did that deal and we gave, uh, ludicrously gave Macron half a billion pounds to patrol his own beaches, a couple of days later, a couple of coppers on the beach, French coppers, uh, thought, oh, right, well, this is the new system. So not only did they puncture a couple of dinghies with big knives, they got someone to photograph them doing it. Say, look, here we go. Look, this is what you're getting for your money. Boom, boom, boom. They were severely reprimanded for doing that. The French are useless to talk to about this. <laughs> they don't want to stop the migrants leaving France. No. They want them to come here. It's pointless talking to the France. Labour always say, well, when we get into power, we'll get round the table with the French. <laughs> like, like the Tories haven't been. It just does not work. France are not our friends in this. They are a bad actor. What, what the EU want, what they want, and this is the, what we need to trade off is, they want some sort of free movement back. That's what they want. We're not having well, that. I can't I'm have afraid. It. <laughs> I don't yeah, care what they have want. It. We've got Hear 70 million out. people Hear in this out. country. We can't have more. Uh, Ivan, I mean, we out. effectively already have it anyway. But I mean, no, no, I, I never said carte blanche free movement. I said some sort. I recently bought a CEO of an airline, a national carrier airline. It took two months to get him over here at a cost of £30,000. I don't know about you and me, but I'd have free movement for CEOs. He should have come in a boat right? then, shouldn't he? Why didn't he come in a well, boat? Then we would, would have welcomed have him with open arms. Should have been a quite an interesting test need. run. Well, that's what the EU want, and that's going to be the trade-off. Eventually, we're going well, to have to do We're not in the business of doing what the EU want. I thought that 17.2 yeah. million people made that clear in this country. Yeah, we don't care what the EU wants. Uh, we make our own decisions. Well, in theory... Yeah. Well, it would benefit us, Kevin, because if we allow... No, it wouldn't. It really movement, wouldn't. The for EU hates us. It's never going workers. to do anything beneficial for Britain. For skilled workers. You, li you live CEOs. in a fantasy world, for Ivan. You're a lovely man well, uh, and I'm, you think well of everyone, saying. but you shouldn't think well of the French in this and you should certainly not think well of the EU here. Well, it's not working, Kevin, because it's going to <laughs> well, be... Again, we found <laughs> a moment of agreement it there. Will, the boats will keep coming and you'll still be coming on complaining about it. So Yeah, we will. You yeah, you bet. But, you you know, a solution. Uh, uh, well, well, what do you think about Keir Starmer's solution uh, uh, when he went to The Hague recently and suggested to the EU that we take our fair share in return for us dumping a few migrants on Europe? Uh, the EU were certainly not very keen on that idea, were they? Well, we're 17th on the list of the number of migrants we're taking on. Well, good. I don't, I, I don't agree with the concept of a fair share. I don't think Why? we should t take any more at all. 
Well, I'm afraid then you should advocate for coming out the convention. And you know what? I, I do. We'll see. I do. <laughs> well, we will see at the All ballot international box conventions are, are dangerous. They're a waste of time. Well, we'll see at the ballot They're like chains around your ankles. Well, you know. Whether people agree with the Home Secretary or not at the ballot box next year, we shall see. Yeah, I think we, I fear we, know the answer we to that. I fear we will. Uh, Ivan, uh, th that was great fun. Really good to talk to you. <laughs> I, I'm not sure you and I will well, ever find any area of common ground. Uh, quite, oh, a, quite a conversation. Lovely. He's lovely. He's not actually nice as guy. lefty as you might think. Yeah, uh, I, I'll tell you. I, do you know where I last bumped into him? Where? Royal Ascot. Yeah, there he had you a go. top hat on. <laughs> yeah, that's lefties for you. Oops, she's done it again. See what I did there? Britney Spears has finally dropped parts of her hotly anticipated upcoming memoir, The Woman in Me. And uh, let's just say it's got everyone screaming, give me more. Uh, in it, the pop princess opens up on her conservatorship, uh, the free Britney movement, and most explosive of all, she makes claims that her ex, Justin Timberlake, not only cheated on her during their three year relationship back in the early two, 2000s, but she also underwent an abortion because he wasn't ready to be a father. Justin is yet to speak out on the allegations made in the book, which is set to be released in full on the 24th of October. To discuss what all the hype's about is entertainment journalist Rebecca Toomey in the studio with me now. Welcome, uh, Rebecca. Uh, yeah, quite an explosive book. Uh, I feel like I've read the whole thing already. <laughs> it's all been all over the papers. But I suppose the central explosive revelation was her relationship with Justin Timberlake, which was when they were very, very young, in their teens, weren't they? Yes, they were. Because they met on a children's show, didn't they? Yeah, they were friends on the Mickey Mouse Club, so when they were, you know, very young. And then as teenagers that sounds do... sounds like my private members <laughs> club, the Mickey Mouse <laughs> But this is really the book we've been waiting for. This is Britney's first chance in an incredibly long time for her to finally have her say in a lot of detail. And there were lots of rumours at the time of the relationship that she had cheated, and that's why Timberlake's famous song, Crimea River, that's what it was all about. And at the time, the, the sort of headlines were around very negative towards Britney. And now she's come out saying that actually she had an abortion when they were together when she was 19, and that she very much wanted the child, and Justin said he wasn't ready. And she called it one of the most agonising things that's, that's happened to her. Yeah, uh, and uh, hasn't she also admitted that she too cheated on Justin? Yes, yes. What a lovely relationship. <laughs> well, they were young and they were teenagers and, you know, they're not... We're talking quite a long time ago now. She was young. She, there were rumours at the time that um, she did cheat with uh, the famous choreographer Wade Robson and in the book she's come out and said they had a kiss. Justin knew it's not that famous him. to me. Well, <laughs> never he, heard of him. <laughs> he, was, he was at the time. This is when, you know, Aguilera, you know, oh, they yeah, were all yeah, mega, yeah. mega stars at the time. Okay. Uh, and um, I also read, uh, she, she's talked about this conservatorship. I mean, the thing about Britney that we learned only, what was it, a couple of years ago, a year or so ago, with that big court case where she was kind of uh, finally... Uh, allowed to separate from her father's control, Finally, yeah. who controlled all the money that she earned. Uh, she didn't get her hands on any of it. Uh, so we learned then just how controlled she was as a star. Yep. And uh, you remember uh, those dramatic moments, I think it was back in the noughties, where she suddenly sort of shaved her hair, started behaving very, very erratically. Yep. And she said that was a reaction 
to years of being controlled, yeah. not even earning her own money. Uh, and uh, so she struck out and uh, shaved her head. So this is quite interesting because when she shaved her head, infamously, she was then later put under psychiatric hold. So this is quite a serious mental health mm. situation. But in the book, Brittany, as I think it's understandable, hasn't necessarily glossed over it, but she's sort of taken ownership and said she was so controlled, so micromanaged, she did that as an act of defiance. And then later on, she was put under the conservatorship. And that's when she was told she had to grow her hair, she had to do a certain thing. She even says in the book, she felt like a robot. And because her womanhood and her autonomy was taken away from her, she felt like a child robot. She was infantilized. And that's how she ended up doing some of the behaviors that she said she did. And she, she lost her passion for music. And you can see that in her later performances, that it just, you know, she was so broken, it just wasn't in her anymore. So what's her deal now? I mean, is she getting all the money that she earns? Is she finally out of the shackles of that conservatorship? Uh, so yeah. she's her own woman now? She is now, but what's really sad is for a very long time, her father controlled her finances and his associates. There's all sorts of reports and rumors that this money was being spent in lots of different places. When you look at the wealth of someone like Taylor Swift, who is the Britney Spears of, of her time, how much money she has in comparison to Britney, Britney's got nowhere near the millions that she should have. So while now, yes, she can spend her own finances and she can do things her way, mm -hmm. it's just very tragic in that she was robbed of so much money as well as so much autonomy. What's going on with her now, though? I mean, she's behaving very erratically again. I mean, that what was the, the dance with the uh, video with the knives, with the dogs in the background. And when people said, be careful, you know, there's a big sharp thing, you know, she's doing all this. Yep. And uh, uh, she said, oh, you know, get over it, get a life. But uh, I think the concerns of her fans uh, were well-founded. Yes, they always have been. And it was the fans, actually, let's remember, who, who started the Free Britney movement, which launched this whole conservatorship. And they were often written off as just crazed loons who, you know, didn't what was going on and actually they genuinely did to help her help her achieve this but when it comes to Britney's mental health at the moment let's remember she's only recently split with her husband Sam Ashgwari she tragically suffered another miscarriage she really desperately wanted a child as well you know she was having to be put under birth control under the conservatorship things that came out that's in that right. court case yeah. there's so much that's gone on in Britney's life so I it's hardly surprising that she's in this sort of mindset I remember one detail uh, when the conservative conservatorship trial was going on that she revealed she wanted to change the colour of her kitchen and wasn't allowed yep. to. She couldn't even decorate her own home. Uh, what's she up to now? I mean, professionally, is she making albums or what's going on? Well, she's been making a couple of singles. Uh, she's made one with Elton John. She's made one with Will I Am. And what Elton John said is that he was made very much sure she was part of the process this time. She was earning the right money. Music is her main passion, but because she's been through so much, she just wants to enjoy being with her dogs, posting on her Instagram how she wants to, because she's never been allowed to do that. And what they do say is a lot of celebrities stay at the age they were when they became famous. Do you remember Britney when she really hit the big time? She was just 15. Yeah. She says herself she was like a child robot. So, so some of the behavior does come across as very childlike. Yeah, but at least she's finally free now to actually post what she wants to and have that liberty. Will we see more music? Is she up to performing? I don't know. She does love doing music. She's got an incredible work ethic. But I think at the moment, she just needs to enjoy seeing this book play out and just have her time. Maybe she'll do her own version of that song, Mac the Knife. Uh, and uh, how old is she now? She's 41. 41. Uh, well, we wish her all the best. Uh, I'm going to throw something in here off piste. Uh, you weren't expecting this, but I know you'll be interested to talk about it. Uh, stories in the papers today emanating from OK Magazine mm -hmm. uh, that Prince Harry 
uh, has applied to rent an apartment in Kensington Palace and that this uh, may be a prelude to Harry and Meghan moving back to Britain. What do you make of that? I think it would be amazing. I think it would be wonderful that if, if he came back with his tail between his legs and said, I'm sorry, I love you guys, I made a mistake, I think we'd forgive him because it, we, we did really adore Harry. I know no one likes Meghan and I am a Meghan defender, but... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I think it would be nice if he said, I made a mistake and I want to make amends, and I think we should give him that chance. Megan has listened to the public outcry, and I think she has stepped back and she has done things differently. She has, she does know people don't like her. So I think with Megan, it would be very interesting if she supports Harry in that, because there have been rumours of trouble in their relationship, but very recently they were spotted holding hands on a romantic trip together. So I think those rumours can kind of settle down a yeah. bit. Uh, but uh, why are you a Megan supporter? Uh, please explain. Oh, no, I know I'm going to get grilled with this. Do you know what? I, I don't like the bullying of, of Megan, actually. Yeah, but that's that, constant that, bullying. That's, um, that doesn't mean uh, that she doesn't deserve criticism, does no, it? She, no, one's, be... no one's been on criticism, but the relentless criticism of Megan is Well, she is brought it on tiring. herself, didn't she? But so did Harry. But I just think there's a lot more... What I feel with all of entertainment, and especially the royal family, it gets a bit pantomime. We have our perfect princess in Kate Middleton, and we have to have our villain. It used to be Camilla Parker Bowles, now it's Meghan Markle, and I just think we need to be a bit more intelligent. Yeah, but, but, and but Camilla nuance. Parker Bowles didn't go around, uh, you know, calling the royal family racists and uh, but what, what did dumping she do? on them. Well, she didn't dump on them from a great height in public, giving massive great interviews and writing awful books, uh, you know, nasty little books about the royal family. So it's, there's no real equivalence between Camilla and uh, the gruesome twosome in Montecito. <laughs> I think there, there is, though, in public perception of women in the royal family. Well, what about, yeah, OK, well, Harry's not a woman, though, is he? No, we're so talking he... about Harry. But they both let us down. Yeah. They both did okay, some horrible things, enough. but I think yeah. we need to try and forgive and move forward. OK, uh, here's what I think. For what it's worth, uh, uh, Meghan will never set foot in this country ever again. She hates the royal family, she hates Britain, and it's feelings mutual. Well, it is, isn't it? Wow. Am I right? Well, I, I don't think anyone is beyond redemption. Like, what has she really done? Yes, yeah, she's oh, done. Oh, yeah, I know her, what she's, she's done. done. We all know what things. she's done. But in comparison to what else is going on in the world, Megan has done some hurtful things, but she hasn't on the grand scale. Let's just get a little bit perspective. She's bruised a few feelings and she did hurt the Brits when I think we welcomed her in. But I do think she's learning. I do think she's changing her way. Well, that's an interesting point. Uh, but I, I just don't think she'll, she wants to come back. I think this application to rent a, uh, an apartment in Kensington Palace on the part of uh, Harry is down to this. The last time he came, he thought he was going to be staying in Frogmore Cottage. Yes. 
that's when he came to that uh, children's awards show, wasn't it? Yeah. And at the last moment, I said, well, actually, you, you have to let us know, and you didn't, so you can't. So at the last moment, he had to book into a hotel. Oh, I think he wants to, yeah, <laughs> he had to book into a massive penthouse suite in a flashy hotel. <laughs> I mean, oh, the tears, pass me the world's smallest violin. Uh, but I think this uh, apartment is probably to avoid that type of situation ever again. Yeah, and also he probably does want to be near his family. There are still some members of the family who he gets on with and likes and wants to be around. Now, has law and order broken down to such a degree that the public are now increasingly relying on so-called private police firms? The Daily Telegraph reports that a suspected burglar was taken to court by a private security firm called TMI, founded by a former Scotland Yard chief inspector. This is amid growing concerns that police don't care about so-called low-level crime. I want to know what you think about this. Give me a call on 0344-499-1000 or send us a text, write talk in your message and send it to 8722. Two. I'm delighted to be joined in the studio by former Met Police detective Peter Blexley. Uh, thanks for coming in, Peter. My pleasure. Uh, what's your view on this? I mean, the, the, to uh, sort of elaborate on what happened, uh, a, a guy was caught uh, nicking stuff in Marks and Spencers. Uh, Marks and Spencers had hired private guards, security guards. Uh, they took the, ca the case to the police. Uh, they had plenty of evidence, so they caught him red-handed. The police declined to prosecute. So the private police company said, damn it, we'll prosecute. So they took him to court and successfully prosecuted. What are the police playing at here? Well, their action do not match the words of their senior police, who have told us recently, of course, that they're going to investigate every crime. Well, that, quite frankly, was a promise that just can't be kept because they claim they're too busy, they don't have enough officers... And there are time and time again repeated instances of people going to the police and getting no service whatsoever. This company, TMI, they also have a sister company called My Local Bobby. And I need to make it crystal clear I have no connection with them whatsoever. I know the founder, David McKelvey, but He's I a have former inspector. Former detective chief inspector. Okay. And he was a vocational cop and he was a very good detective. Mm -hmm. Very good. And he set up these companies and basically they're doing the police's work in many, many places. They work in conjunction with what are called BIDs, B-I-Ds, Business Improvement Districts, mm -hmm. a lot of them. And they employ not only their uniformed officers that patrol and detain shoplifters, but also their plain clothes detectives who go out there undercover and arrest shoplifter after shoplifter and also detain people for some other pretty serious crimes. And while I, you know, TMI, uh, I mean, we have to compliment them, really, don't we? Because they didn't need to do this. I mean, that cost them money to do this, to bring this private prosecution. Uh, they could have just done their job, said to uh, Marks and Spencer, right, we got this, is the guy, bam, bam. Uh, and when the police said, well, we're not getting involved, they could have just dropped the whole thing and moved on. Uh, carried on, uh, you know, earning their money from Marks and Sparks. So it's quite a kind of uh, a, a sort of public service they've done here, isn't it? They're incredibly effective. Wherever they are employed, crime reduces dramatically, so particularly retail crime. And all they're doing is old-school police work 
that we used to do in the 70s, the 80s and the 90s. They go out there, they arrest shoplifters and if need be, they prosecute them. They have conducted hundreds of private prosecutions. They have their own prosecution team. They're very uh, experienced in putting cases together, getting them to court and getting people convicted. As I say, they don't have to do that, so all credit to them. Uh, to go back to your original point about police chiefs uh, never doing anything that they say they're going to do, I mean, time and time again, we've heard various Home Secretaries, particularly Suella Bravan, saying to the police, look, no more of this, we're not going to investigate shoplifting. We're not going to bother with burglaries. Uh, we're not going to bother with uh, cars being stolen. Uh, she said, no more of this. Start investigating every case. And all the police chiefs goes, yes, yes, we will, we will. And they just don't. Yeah, I'm not seeing evidence of it. In fact, you know, I speak to a lot of people. I'm a chatty kind of fella. And every, I've noticed. <laughs> and, and every week I am hearing tales of people who have not had an investigation of their crime or they've been a victim of crime and because they know they're not going to get an investigation, they simply don't report it. There are so many unreported crimes out there now that we just cannot trust the crime statistics that the police or politicians will trumpet and say there's a reduction in crime. No, there isn't. Police just don't trust the police to give them an effective, prompt, professional investigation so they don't bother reporting the crimes. Yeah, I mean, come back to a, a sort of a cliched point, really, but... Uh, about getting some bobbies on the beat. I mean, if they were walking up and down the high street, that would deter shoplifters at least a little bit. We need deterrence against shoplifting because it's become a national scourge. Uh, and then you learn that one in every four, a quarter of all coppers, 25%, never, ever leave the police station. Yeah. Uh, they've been reduced to the level or they are now at the level of just basically being office clerks. Why don't police chiefs see the lunacy, the absurdity of this and say, get out from behind your desk and get out on the beat? Why don't they do that? Many officers don't like the rough and tumble of the front line. <laughs> so they get themselves a cosy desk to drive instead of a police car, let alone walk the beat, heaven forbid. They've told us that they're going to bring back neighbourhood policing. I'm not seeing a huge upturn in that yet, although I did meet my local neighbourhood policing team a couple of weeks ago at a meeting and the people seemed fairly committed and they were pleasant enough, but they didn't stop my neighbour's car getting stolen a couple of nights ago. You know, crime is abundant, unfortunately. There are too many police officers doing roles in police buildings or stations that could be filled by civilian employees, by police staff rather than police officers. But there needs to be a, col a collective will now. I don't detect that many police officers absolutely hate crime like we did when yeah. I was a young cop. We took it as a real affront to our ability to police our manner if crime was committed on it. Yeah. And we were passionate. Took it personally. We really did. And the neighbourhood cops, yeah. the home beat officers, when they came in in the morning and looked at the crime report book, if there was a burglary on their manor, they were livid. They took such pride in trying to keep crime down and being effective. And I don't see that collective will. And also, I'm afraid, there is a younger generation now who have become so used to having their phones stolen, their bikes stolen, or their parents' houses burgled, or their parents' cars nicked off the drive, that they've become 
desensitised to crime. They almost accept it as a part of everyday life. Mm -hmm. And, of course, I am hugely irritated by crime whenever it happens, wherever it happens. Mm. And uh, there was a survey recently of all the police officers and, uh, the, the uh, you know, what is it you like best about being a copper? And uh, what came in as number one on the list was helping people. Now, I reckon, because uh, what you just explained, I would like to say, where did those days gone where, go? Where did those coppers who hated crime go? I would suggest if they ha had a, a similar survey during your days, uh, number one would be uh, that what you like most about being a police officer was catching the bad guys. The greatest thing about policing in my time, and I accept it was some time ago, but I've got many, many contemporary police sources that tell me tales of woe. The greatest thing about having a warrant card in your back pocket, about being a cop, was being able to utter those two immortal words. <laughs> your nick. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, as I say, to come back to what I just said, what happened to those days? What happened to coppers like you? What happened to the culture of policing when you were a copper? I mean, I know you're not a spring chicken, but it's not that long ago. It seems to have completely disappeared now. Yes, and I think there's a breakdown between management and the front line. I don't think the front line feel as supported as we were back in our day. I think there's a lot of police officers who are fiercely ambitious to climb that greasy pole of promotion. So they will throw an officer under the bus at any opportunity they can because it will look good at their next interview selection panel and that kind of thing. So I think there's been a breakdown. I don't think policing is as much a, a, of a family, of a team, of a collective that it used to be back in the day. And consequently, officers are disheartened. Uh, I'll tell you uh, an incident that I think uh, contributes to, what shall we say, uh, the ineffectiveness of policing today. Only recently, the, 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 the armed police officer uh, who was uh, put on a murder charge for uh, shooting someone in the line of his duty. Uh, and, of course, you know, so a lot of coppers will think, well, hang on a second, if I go the extra mile and try and catch the bad guy, uh, if I uh, try and do my duty and protect the public, uh, what happens to me? I get charged with murder. That's not going to encourage people, coppers, to go the extra mile uh, in the line of their duty, is it? We will wait and see what happens with that trial, of course. That, that officer is, is awaiting trial as we speak. What I will say is that officers have stood trial for murder and attempted murder when they fired their guns in the past. There was a case in Earl's Court when uh, a man called Stephen Waldorf was shot. He survived. Officers were charged with attempted murder. They were acquitted. There was an officer called Dougie Lovelock who shot Cherry Gross dead. He was charged with murder. He was acquitted. Another officer in more recent times, Tony Long, was charged with shooting dead Azel Rodney. He stood trial for murder. He was acquitted. Yeah, well, I, I, I just think that officers uh, who, are, are, you know, unleash their weapons uh, in the course of their duty uh, should be protected from this. I mean, you, you're right, uh, you know, often in these cases you get the right verdict, they're acquitted, but why should they have to go through this? I mean, what, what, if, you, if you were an armed officer... And I was. And, well, OK, so I'm talking to exactly the right guy, and you're in that split-second situation, a lot of officers say, well, if I pull this trigger, I'm going to end up in court. So I know what I'll do. I won't pull it. They won't have time to consider that. You have to make split-second decisions often. You know, literally, in the blink of an eye, do you squeeze that trigger or don't you? Mm. Armed officers, like all police officers, 
need to be held to account, of course. I get that. But any such investigation into the firing of a gun by a cop needs to be prompt. They drag on forever and a day. Mm. The Independent Office of Police Conduct will launch an investigation sometimes when there's very little kind of information to justify that. Mm -hmm. That's what the officers are also aggrieved about. The length of time these investigations take, they're very aggrieved about that and the disruption it can have on an officer's life. Sometimes there is a case pending where an officer shot a man dead, there was no evidence to charge him, but years and years later there is still the prospect of a discipline hearing and it is now seven or eight years after that officer pulled the trigger. Those kind of things are manifestly unacceptable and need to be speeded up dramatically. Yeah, yeah. Armed officers need some protection. Now, to prove that uh, I can change my opinions on a, a sixpence, uh, let's talk about uh, this kid, a 14-year-old kid in Birmingham, I mean, which this seems kind of wrong to me. He's only a 14-year-old kid. Uh, cops were called to his home where there was some sort of family dispute going on. Uh, they feared a violent attack and they ended up tasering this little teenager. Uh, they should be a little bit more careful uh, with a taser, shouldn't they, than uh, sort of electrocuted, sho- sho- shoving uh, 50,000 volts through the, the body of a, a young teenager? I've, been, I've watched a video of it. It was only about a minute long. What it doesn't do is tell the story of the events leading up to that officer discharging their taser. Mm-hmm. So that we haven't seen, that we don't know. The police officers were wearing body-worn videos, of course, so they will tell the story of the background towards that officer discharging the taser. I will wait to see what the events were before he pulled that trigger, before I leap to some kind of judgment over it. But there was a bit of a ridiculous debate that I took part in yesterday about should police officers taser children? A very broad kind of... I guess that's what I'm saying. ...title for it, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. But... We have a tide of teenage blood flowing through the yeah. streets of our nation, particularly in London, where teenagers are killing teenagers. Mm. When you are in a, a, a situation where you might be confronted by a very violent young person, mm. somebody armed with a weapon that could be fatal, you are not going to ask them to pull out their birth certificate <laughs> to check their age <laughs> before you discharge your taser. You don't have the luxury of that kind of time on your hands. So tasers are important. Over 110 police officers are assaulted every single day of the week. They need to be able to protect themselves. Yeah, and uh, of course, 14-year-olds can be very big. Uh, we don't, I don't know the details of this, so we haven't got that video, but uh, uh, it'll probably uh, revolve around uh, just how big this kid is. Uh, interesting stuff, though, Peter. Thank you very much, Peter Blexey there. Uh, now, lots of you have been getting in touch. You can have your say on all the socials, at Talk TV and on the phones, 03444991000. Let's hear now from a caller, David in Wakefield, who wants to talk about the police. So stick around, Peter. Uh, hello, uh, David. What would you like to say? All right, Kev. Uh, hello, Peter. I'd like to ask you a couple of questions about actually what's happened with this police in the last few years. Uh, 
I'm I'm not young anymore. I'm in my sixties, and and I've been a motorcyclist. Our roads at the moment are absolutely lawless where we live, and I mean lawless. We've got cars driving round without number plates. We've got motorcycles with people with balaclavas on going in and robbing people, robbing shops. Um, I don't know about having separate security to do your, your, your shops with shoplifting, the ones that we've seen on TV where there's gangs going in. Have these private security going to be armed? Are they going to be armed private security? Are we going to see one of them maybe get killed? You know what you've just said about weapons and the lawlessness in this country. What has happened Peter, to our police that we used to respect. I used to get pulled up on my motorbike for no help plates. I used to get pulled up for carrying a passenger. And we used to get fined and taken to court. What's happened to it all? What's, well, what's gone wrong? What do you think, Peter? Well, first of all, I must say, Dave, I'm in my 60s as well, and we are mere puppies, OK? Um, yes, what has happened to our policing? Well, in the last 20 years or so, so many senior police officers have trotted off to university, got themselves degrees so they have letters after their name as well as in front of their name, and they've come back to policing with essentially their heads full of pseudo-intellectual claptrap <laughs> and, and degrees in basket weaving and business management. Community relations, that's what counts, Peter. Things that are not relevant or applicable to policing, in my opinion, and there has been a slide an inexorable slide towards where we are in policing. And I just found myself nodding along with everything that Dave said. Where are the traffic police anymore? They've been slashed. Where are the police officers on the streets as a deterrent patrolling? Yeah, as I just said, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Dave, thanks for the call. Uh, let's hear now from a caller, Steve, in France, who also wants to talk about the police. So we've still got Peter Blexley here. Thank God for that. Uh, what would you like to say, Steve? Oh, yes. Uh, police again. Basically, I was a councillor um, in Torbay between the 80s and early 90s. And uh, I had two councillors, very large council estates in our ward, which were, obviously there were problems there, but they were obviously some very nice people, law-abiding people. And the local Bobby, who actually did the beat, you saw him on the beat in those days, I invited him along to the community meetings. Initially, everybody was a bit, oh, wow, PC so-and-so was here. But they got to know him after a while, and we had two-way conversations. He learned about all their problems that they didn't bring up to the police because they didn't want to talk about the neighbours too much. And it was a two-way thing, and it made the um, community more aware, and also the policemen knew what was going on. And we'd, we'd lost all that. Yeah, that's, that's community relations. Coppers talking to uh, people in, in a uh, local community, being a part of that community, not dancing the bloody Macarena, right? Neighbourhood policing brilliantly no, summed up no, in exactly. one call to Talk TV. Absolutely spot on. That's what neighbourhood policing should be all about. And when those police officers, the uniform ones, who are kind of well-known and contactable uh, and all those sort of things, when they get information... What they would do is come back to the police stations and tell the young detectives mm -hmm. what that information was. And it would be us who smashed the doors in yeah. and arrested people and seized the stolen goods and slapped the handcuffs on, leaving the community police officer to still be that community bobber. Welcome back. You are watching The Independent...
Republic of Mike Graham on Talk TV. Now, inflation remained at 6.7%, well above the Bank of England's target of 2%, but below the peak of 11.1%. What does this mean in practice uh, for the pound in your pocket? And could we finally be over the worst of the cost of living crisis? Uh, to talk all things money and to answer your questions on the cost of living crisis is acting editor of Times Money Mentor, Georgie Frost. What do you mean, acting editor? Got, no, got, just, got your equity card? Oh, no, I'm just stepping in there, doing a job. Okay. And then oh, doing back a, to doing nothing. You're doing a, <laughs> <laughs> Taking the money, running. Yeah. <laughs> doing as little as possible. Uh, no, but seriously, uh, mm. um, uh, cost of living crisis, is it getting better? Because, what was it, a month or so, until a month or so ago, it was obsessive, it was all over the front pages, uh, are, are people feeling the pinch a little less than they were? Well, some people might be, some people not. That's the problem with these figures. People will be listening yesterday to 6.7%. What does that mean? Well, it means that the buffins that be have put all these things in this thing they call a basket of goods and services and worked out roughly how much stuff is going up by. And they say it's 6.7%. But, you know, one of the things that's kept that higher than they'd expected is petrol. If you don't drive a car, it's not going to impact you so much. Food prices are falling, but they're still 12%. What this means, it really depends on you personally, how you're spending your money, what your commitments are. Older people, those people on lower incomes who spend more of their money on things like energy and petrol and food are more likely to be affected. But why does this matter? Why does that 6.7% figure... Why it matters is because the government and other organizations, other groups, things like your mobile phone provider, for example, will use these figures when they're looking at how much to raise things like train fares, benefits, pensions, mm -hmm. those sorts. So that is why this figure matters. And this figure particularly matters because it's linked to things like benefits, as I said, and also pensions, which may be going up like yeah, a lot yeah, next year. Was it 8% like or something? 8.5%. Why is that? Because in 2010... Oh, I'm interested in pensions. I'm asking for a friend. Yeah, yeah. You're nowhere near that age. You don't have to worry about it <laughs> It's yet. not that far off. Uh, but seriously, 8.5%? Uh, yeah, yeah. That's a lot, isn't it? Why? It is a lot, and it went up 10.1% in April. Why does it go up? Because after years and years and years of below inflation rises for state pensioners, in 2010, the government decided this cannot go on. So they brought in something called the triple lock, which means that the state pension must go up by wage growth, inflation, or 2.5%, whichever is higher. Okay. Now, in amongst those are wage growth figures that came out last month, mm -hmm. inflation figures that come out now, and 2.5%. So we now know that the wage growth figures that came out last month were 8.5%. It is higher than the 6.7% that we got yesterday. Ta-da! Therefore, 8.5% is the figure. Problem with this figure is that figure... I, I didn't really follow you there, but uh, I'm sure it was brilliantly explained. I'm not very good at maths. The problem is no massive... It's just which one yes, of these is. figures is, is higher. There you go. You know 8.5 is higher than 6.7. Yeah, okay. But the problem with the 8.5 figure is that it includes the bonuses that were given to the NHS workers. So it should be around 7.8 if you exclude bonuses and make it a more representative figure, which is still very high, but if you took 7.8%, not 8.5, you would be saving the government hundreds of millions of pounds. Mm. But I challenge any government 
that wants to not give money to pensioners. So what does the average pensioner, uh, what's the basic pension uh, now uh, and what will it be when it's you around get about the, ten and a half thousand pounds a year so look It'll in terms of getting a, a what, comfortable what, wage, about eleven and a half so it's about 960 extra if it goes up in, in line with this triple lock now the government is saying and everybody's economists are saying this simply isn't affordable when you've got benefits that are uprated by inflation figure that came out yesterday 6.7 percent Maybe. This is if the government decide to tinker around with it in the autumn statement, which is coming up next month. You've also you've got state pension going up by 8.5. So it's not even going up with the rate of other people who are on benefits. But it's going to cost this increase, as we're seeing at the moment, billions mm -hmm. extra. As I said, it's a political hot potato. I challenge any government to, to take a look at it. But last year, we had it tinkered with because of the pandemic figures with wage growth. This year, the government's saying, oh, we're going to tinker with it again because of the, the figures of the bonuses. It's an unsustainable model. Maybe bring it down to a triple lock, a, a double lock, which is the inflation figure, or 2.5. Okay. No one is disputing the fact that we can't go back to the time when okay. pensioners weren't getting that rise. But I would say to anyone in the situation as well, if you are young like yourself, Kev, <laughs> 11,000, even if it stays at that, is never going to be enough to, to, to live on. You yeah. need to take it into your own You're talking about hands. not much over 200 quid a week, which is very difficult for anyone. And uh, I think maybe for the first time in my useless, uh, ignorant life, I might vaguely understand the uh, triple lock. So thanks for that. Um, We've got a lot of uh, texts coming in asking you questions, Georgie. Yeah. Uh, here's one from Hannah. and uh, This will reflect uh, the fears and concerns of many mortgage holders. She says, uh, my mortgage deal is about to expire. <laughs> With prices sky high, what options do I have? I mean, I think the worry is if you have one of the, if you don't have uh, a fixed rate mortgage uh, with the way uh, the interest rate is going up, 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 uh, you could end up having a huge monthly repayment, couldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my brother is one of these people. His mortgage payments went up £300 a month, which is where do you find that down the back of the sofa, just out of nothing? It is really difficult for people who are going through this. Now, there are options to take. The average figures that you'll be seeing around at the moment are six point, roughly 6.3% for a two-year fix. Whew, just before the Bank of England started raising rates, you could get a sub 1%. Obviously, you need a big deposit for that, but look, you were averaging about 2%. That is a big rise and a scary one if you're looking at the end of a fixed rate. If you roll on to a standard variable mortgage, the average is over 8%. Ouch. Yeah. So look, there are options you could do. These are averages. So actually, there are better deals out there. We're seeing some under 5%, still higher than what we've been seeing. But I'm sorry, don't expect to go back to that situation. The best thing to do is speak to a broker who knows the market, an independent broker who can see what's out there. The good thing is, as well, if you're looking to buy a house, we are seeing prices go down. But of course, if you're selling, yeah, you may good. have to do that yeah. as well. Yeah. Budget for the rise now. Price that in. The good news is you can, with most cases, lock into a deal up to six months in advance. And if that becomes a worse deal or something better comes out, you can break that contract, usually. But double check that you can. Okay. But there are options available. So speak to a broker out there. Find you know, what are the best deals. Tracker mortgages. A lot of people are going on those. Often you don't have to lock-in, well, so you won't be charged. Mortgages, do they follow? They follow the base rate. Base rate. 
now, because this leads us back it's to... It's all about that now, do you? Well, so this leads us back to what will the Bank of England do next? We've just seen inflation not go down as we'd hoped. 6.7% it remained at. Stickier than we expected. However, you, By the way, just sorry to interrupt. No. Do you predict uh, that Rishi will achieve uh, his stated <laughs> aim of halving inflation by Christmas? Because this month it stayed exactly the same. Uh, so it doesn't necessarily look as easy. It's going down, but it didn't this month. He could do. I mean, when he made that pledge in December, it was about 10.5%. So he'd be looking around 5.25%. Mm. We feel quite a long way off. It's possible. The situation going on in the Middle East, yeah. who knows? I wouldn't make a prediction about it, but I also sort of smirk a little bit because I think... Really, what's Rishi Sunak able to do about it? But the question that people will be asking is what's going to happen to mortgage rates? What's going to happen to the base rate next? Mm. All the experts predict, and as I said, the situation can change at any time, that actually there may be one more rate rise, perhaps, or two even next year. Mm. They expect the next month that will hold at 5.25%. Okay. Let's see how this is playing out in the economy. But that's already sort of fixed into to mortgages. We expect them to go down to about... 4.5%, but expect higher for longer. Don't expect these to go back down. We're talking about when the base rate will fall. I mean, the expectations are maybe summer or autumn next year, but I mean... Who knows? All you can do uh, is what you, you need to do now. Yeah, so Rishi Sunak made five pledges. He did. One of which uh, was that uh, he would halve inflation by Christmas. He could well be on course to do that. Uh, so one out of five ain't bad, is it? Because the other four, no chance whatsoever. Let's uh, ask, uh, let's uh, take a question from David here. He says, uh, the media says inflation is down. Uh, in which case, why are prices in the supermarket still so high? Quick answer, please, George. Uh, inflation actually isn't down. It held in the same months last year. It depends on supermarkets. Look, the reality is now that, you know, the pricing in supermarkets is so all over the place. Food prices are supposed to actually be lower than they were, particularly cheese. If you like cheese, it's down 3.3%, apparently. But look, it behold it's beholden on you to go around, sadly, it's the case now, and, and shop around for the best deals. Welcome back. I want to remind you of that breaking news. A Hamas security force chief has been killed alongside some of his family uh, in an Israeli airstrike on his home. Jihad Mason uh, was one of the key leaders within Hamas. We can now speak to Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner, who is the spokesperson for the Israeli Defence Force. Uh, Peter, uh, I, I would suggest that perhaps uh, congratulations are in order. You've taken out a very dangerous man. We are taking them off one by one, Kevin. I mean, this is the goal of our operation is to dismantle all of Hamas from Yihya Sinwar, the prime minister, the mastermind behind the massacre of October 7th, all the way down to the last operator that penetrated, infiltrated into our communities, butchered and murdered and abducted uh, Israelis. So I would say it's not an issue of congratulations, but it's an issue of we are determined to restore safety and security to our people. And the people that perpetrate this atrocity against, against us are going to pay. And uh, I assume this is some sort of triumph for your intelligence services that you uh, knew where this guy was. Uh, have you got uh, a handle on where the other key players in Hamas might be within Gaza? Kevin, you don't expect me really to reveal what we know or what we don't know, but I would say every Hamas terrorist needs to know they are in our sights. 
They need to know that we are going to take justice for the thousand, over three, 1,300 people that they butchered, murdered, massacred, raped, and burnt. And the, the 203 people that are now being held hostage, men, women, children, elderly, Holocaust survivors, um, we are going to exert a, a, a force that they have never, ever endured in the history of their existence. And we intend on removing them from the face of existence. And uh, I, I, this is another question that I don't expect an answer to, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Uh, President Biden, uh, we learn on the front page of The Times this morning, has backed a full-scale Israeli offensive, the one that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has been talking about by land, sea and air. Now, obviously, you're taking out these Hamas leaders or you took this one out uh, without the full-scale invasion, uh, but you're going after all of Hamas, uh, I have to ask you, uh, we're assuming there will be a, a full-scale invasion soon. Uh, are we right to assume that? Well, we are preparing ourselves for that eventuality. The ground forces are preparing, including tasking them with specific missions to destroy Hamas. So each unit will have its own task, specific locations, specific people that they will be hunting down, specific capabilities we will be negating from the terrorist organization Hamas. And that is, and, and we're obviously equipping them, making sure that they are well aware of their each and individual tasks, but also the ability to uh, uh, train and be prepared for whatever is at, at hand. Our ground operation will be at, in a time and manner when we see fit and in accordance to our overreaching goals to destroy Hamas. Not a minute before, and I would say not a minute after. It needs to be orchestrated extremely well. It's, you know, it's a huge amount of force that we've recruited, some 300,000 reservists, which is, which is a, it's the largest amount of reservists we've ever recruited in the history of the State of Israel. And that goes to show how serious we are at changing the paradigm. So Hamas, it's not just a terrorist organization. It's a, a government that is a, a, a state-like government of, of terrorism. They have subordinated the entire system for terrorist activities, from the prime minister at the top through the finance minister, who we've also taken out uh, through the operatives. It is all to serve terrorism. You know, uh, there are, have been over the past few days quite a few stories that where international media are quoting Hamas as fact and they don't understand that it's like quoting North Korea. You wouldn't touch, you wouldn't trust them for the for whatever they would say. So why do we trust Hamas? Uh, we mustn't trust anything that they are saying, anything they are doing. Everything is in accordance to their psychological terrorism, their global terrorism, and their act against terrorism against the people of Israel. Um, what, what is the, the long-term plan uh, in terms of Israel for Gaza? Uh, quite right, uh, you've got everybody's backing. Take these medieval religious tyrants, Hamas, out of action. Just take them out, get rid of them, destroy them. We hope you uh, succeed in that endeavour. Uh, but after that, uh, what is the plan for Gaza? The, the plan is to, first of all, restore safety and security to Israel. That is the ultimate plan. Um, the, the people who need to govern Gaza, whoever it is, needs to know they cannot be involved in terrorism against Israel. That is what's important. 
our perspective, you know, the, the government of, of Israel and our uh, ambassadors and ministers have been saying, we do not want to reoccupy Gaza. That is not Israel's interest. We don't want, we just don't want our neighbors to attack us, butcher us in our bedrooms, um, uh, abduct our elderly uh, into the Gaza Strip and hold them hostage. Um, and we won't let that happen, whoever comes after Hamas. It won't be a terrorist organization that can do these type of things. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.